0: reading is from 1 Corinthians 5 1-13 It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans a man has his father's wife and you are proud shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this even though I am not physically present I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I was was present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast as you are as you really are for Christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast the yeast of malice and wickedness but with bread without yeast the bread of sincerity and truth i've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mind to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. It spelled the wicked men from among you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Those are some pretty shocking words that begin chapter 5 of Paul's letter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Of all the things that a church could be proud of, how how is this one of them? There is sexual immorality and no one bats an eyelid. Revealing deep problems among them. And so Paul in this chapter seeks to set the Corinthians straight. Uh, We'll come to it in a moment, but first uh, I'm going to pray, so please join me as we ask for God's help uh, to understand these words as he intends. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, and we know that it is uh, good for us as we look at it now, and please would you give us understanding. Please work in our hearts, uh, help us to see um, the place of church discipline as we look closer at this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us during this series in 1 Corinthians, uh, so far we've seen a church that is divided. They're divided over their favourite leaders, treating some like heroes and others like villains, when they should be treating them all as servants of God. They're divided because some have tried to promote worldly ideas that they believe are more impressive than Jesus Christ and his cross. This is a church causing a lot of concern for the Apostle Paul who was like a father to them. He's the one who started the church years before and naturally he cares for them deeply. But today he addresses another issue in the church, a devastating issue as as far as he's concerned and we saw a glimpse of it at the end of our passage last week. Paul wanted to come and see the Corinthians, God willing, but the manner in which he came depended on their response. He was either going to come with a whip or in a gentler way. He knew that this church needed discipline. And as he confronts the church in in chapter 5, we learn three things. Firstly, church discipline is good for the individual. Secondly, church discipline is good for the church. And thirdly, church discipline is, is limited for the church. So firstly, church discipline is good for the individual, verses 1 to 5. What happened in Corinth was so bad that you wouldn't even expect it from people who were outside the church, who, who didn't know any better. That's what verse 1 is getting at. Corinth was a progressive city, but this type of thing was even beyond them. A man has his father's wife. Uh, it doesn't give us a lot of background, does it? We don't know if the, the father had died. Uh, I'm sure people have come up with scenarios that perhaps make it sound less horrific than it is. But I think Paul wants us to be shocked by this. It's strange the way he describes the relationship. Uh, you think he'd just say his mother. But because he doesn't, a, a number of people suggest that this could be uh, the man's stepmother. And I think that's that's probably a legitimate thought. If I said that... My wife that's my wife's son, uh, you could think that maybe it's not my son. Maybe he's from a previous marriage. And because Paul describes the relationship in this way, it seems reasonable to kind of understand it, interpret it that way. But the simple matter is, what's happened is wrong. This very thing was forbidden in the law that God had given to his people. Uh, Leviticus 18, uh, verse 8 says this, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Now there's no doubt that's what has taken place uh, and that's what is wrong in God's eyes. But we see something equally horrific in verse 2. He says, and you are proud. There's something dreadful about this situation, isn't there? A church is, is proud about behaviour that God has told them is sinful. And we might wonder, what are they actually bragging about? Well, Without spoiling too much um, of what's to come in, in the weeks ahead, this is a church who is kind of overplaying their freedom in Christ. They think freedom in Christ means anything goes. They can do whatever they like. And they seem to be proud of the fact that they're, they're so accepting of all people. Even this man who's taken his father's wife. Now the way the church should have responded in such a situation was clear to Paul. And we see it in verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? That is, after all, the right response to sin. And the right action is there in the second half of the verse. Shouldn't you have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? You'll notice that in in this instance, it's only the man who Paul blames. Uh, I'm not sure why. It could be because the woman isn't a believer in this instance. There's no need to remove her from the church because she wasn't part of the church, perhaps. But this man was, and and so he's the one who needs to be removed. Uh, Paul explains his view in verse 3. Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this. As if I were present. He has condemned this person. And in verses 4 and 5, he reminds them of of what should have happened. Paul is with them in spirit, and as an apostle, they have his approval to act. He is with them in this matter. What's more, when they meet as God's people, they meet in the name of Jesus, in his power. And so in verse 5, he calls them to hand this man over to Satan. And what does he mean by that? Hand this man over to Satan. I don't think he's saying this guy's completely beyond help. He's, he's going to hell. There's no hope for him. Uh, the Bible describes Satan as the prince of this world. So he's, he's calling the church to essentially hand this man over to the world. Don't allow him to continue living this double life. If he wants to mingle with the enemy, then, then let him go into enemy territory. And hopefully he'll see how helpless he really is. And Paul hopes that by handing him over now, it will actually be in his best interests on the day of salvation. He hopes that as a result of church discipline, this man will actually come to his senses and he will be saved when the Lord returns. There's a story of a a mother whose son was a drug addict. And as his addiction got worse, their relationship became more and more strained. And one day she told him that unless he got help, he was no longer welcome at home. He stormed off, and he didn't return that night. One night became two nights. Two nights became a week. Understandably, she was very worried through all of this. And after 10 days, in the middle of the night, she heard this knock at the door. It was the sun, and he, he wasn't in a good way. He said, I, I have nowhere to go. Can I please stay the night? And every part of her wanted to say yes. But she knew deep down it wouldn't help him. So she went against everything that her mind was telling her to do. And she told him, you made your choice. This is no longer your home. You're not welcome here unless you get help. And just as she was about to close the door, the boy said to her, I'll get help. And that changed the course of his life. Sometimes the loving thing to do is not always the most obvious to us. In fact, sometimes it seems unloving. It seems harsh. And we fear the consequences. I'm sure all of the consequences would have been racing through that mother's mind. What if he doesn't come back? What if something happens to him? The loving thing isn't always the most obvious to us. That's what verse 5 demonstrates. Instead of ignoring sin, pretending like it's not our problem, Paul points out the need to deal with it. They need to exercise discipline in the church when they see a brother or sister caught in sin in this way. It won't be easy. It will likely seem harsh or even unloving. But God's word tells us this is what's best for the individual in the long run. But they're not the only one who church discipline is good for. Uh, and this leads nicely into the, the second part of our passage. Church discipline is good for the church. Uh, verses 6 to 8. And in this next section, Paul showcases the, the toxic nature of sin. Uh, and as we've gone through this letter, we've, we've seen how Paul uses examples from everyday life to kind of help people understand. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he used agricultural examples. He used Construction examples. Uh, And today we we see Paul put his baker's hat on. He's in the bakery. He helps us to see how infectious sin can be. Verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Uh, This was probably a common phrase that was used back in that time. Uh, A little bit like saying one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. The, The same kind of effect is at work. Now with a little yeast, if you you ask anyone who bakes, it does go a long way. Just as a small amount of yeast works through, uh, and just as a small amount of yeast works through the whole batch of dough, sin that is unchecked will impact the whole church. So Paul urges them in verse 7, Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Uh, In the second verse of of chapter 1, Uh, of this letter. Paul talked about the fact they've been made holy in Jesus, and he reiterates that now. In Jesus, you are a new batch. Uh, Think of a a derelict house that's been replaced with a new one. Uh, When you look at it, when you observe the new house, you wouldn't even know what was once there. So the Corinthians are to be in Christ. Now as we read Verse 7, we, we could easily think it to be saying, get get rid of the sin in your life before it corrupts you. But Paul here is addressing the whole church, remember. Verse 7 is, is reinforcing the need to remove this man from the gathering of God's people. They are to be a new batch, free of the yeast of unrepentant sin. For Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Uh, the Passover takes us back to... Exodus, the book of Exodus, uh, and God's people being freed from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Back then, God's people offered their sacrifice so the angel would would pass over them and would spare their firstborn. But now Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's saying, just as the Jews were delivered back then from slavery and, and evil, and as they came to become the people of God... So Jesus is the Passover for his people today. He is the one who has been sacrificed for us, delivering us from slavery, making us his own. And so in verse 8, Paul exhorts the Corinthians, Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. The old is gone, they are now new. Uh, During the festival in the the lead up to Passover, the people of God put away their yeast. I I think they did it for about a week. They didn't touch yeast. And if they came into contact with it, they had to be cut off, separated from the people of God. But now it's Christ who has put away the yeast once and for all through his sacrifice. By giving up his life. He faced separation from God and his people so that we wouldn't have to. The Corinthians aren't to follow the old way of life, which is marked by malice and wickedness. They are to feed on the new bread of sincerity and truth. If they allow just one man to to sin in this way and not do anything about it, well, it won't be long before the whole church in Corinth will be impacted. Such is the impact of sin. You compromise in, in one little way and all of a sudden you find yourself compromising in in a number of ways. And that is why they need to deal with this situation uh, before things like this and other situations start to completely destroy the church. Why is there a need for church discipline? To protect the church, God's people, the temple of God as we saw in chapter 3. Now as a church there's no point in in knowing about the problem of sin yet, yet doing nothing about it. Uh, imagine turning up to your doctor for a regular checkup, uh, and you think you're fine, but it turns out you're actually very, very unwell. You could die if they don't do something about it. But the doctors and the nurses decide not to say anything because they don't know you that well. It's not their place. Now, I'm sure this would never happen, but imagine how outrageous that would be, being in a position to help, yet not helping. It would seem completely ridiculous, wouldn't it? And yet, that's essentially what the church has been doing in Corinth by ignoring this man's sin. What they don't realise is the impact that it will have on them. The way the whole community will be tainted by sin, by this sin, by future sin. Maybe they think it's not that bad. Maybe they think it's, it's not really my place to say anything. Before they know it, they will find themselves looking more and more like the world and less and less like Christ. Now it becomes very clear in, in verse 9 that uh, Paul has already written another letter to the Corinthians which has caused them some confusion. Uh, and this is a letter that, that we don't have any record of. Uh, it seems like this last section of the passage is, is dedicated to addressing this. The last thing we see Church discipline is only for those in the church. Uh, In his previous letter, the the one which we don't have, Paul says he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But he clarifies what he meant. He didn't mean anyone in the world who was immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. And he says that if that's what he had meant, then it would create a massive dilemma because they'd have to leave this world altogether. It's a world overflowing with these things, because that's what happens when people turn away from God. Now some people have wrongly taken this verse and said, well, let's just live in isolation. Why don't we cut ourselves off from this corrupt world? And there are many examples of this through history, uh, like some of the monks who, who set up monasteries and cut off contact with the outside world. Uh, and I'm sure if you if you look hard enough, you'll find other examples. But it goes completely against what Paul is saying. There will be times in life where it may be wise for us to kind of pull back from certain situations, not put ourselves into situations where we know we're going to sin. There's wisdom in that. But that doesn't mean cut yourself off from any contact with non-Christians. Some of us need to be wiser so as to not fall into sin. But some of us need to be wary of kind of retreating from the world too easily. Now what Paul is saying is is made clear in verse 11. Now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Now when many of us look at a, a list like that, we might think, well am I the one who should be cut off from other Christians? Because it's a pretty broad list. Christians who are sexually immoral, who are greedy, who are idolaters, who have slandered others, who've had a few drinks too many, or who've used deception for their own benefit. Are we the ones who need to be removed from the church? Well, I hope not. Uh, I hope what Paul has described in verse 11 isn't what characterizes any of us. And I think that's the key here. These are people who have become known for these things. These are people whose lives are characterized by these sins. They're content in these things. They see no need for repentance. If you come across Christians like this in the church, Paul says, don't even eat with them. It does sound harsh, doesn't it? He's not talking about Christians who stumble from time to time like we all do, who sin and and recognise it's wrong and and want to change and need Christ to change us. These are people whose lives are are characterised by their sin, knowingly, willingly compromising when it comes to how God has called us to live. And Paul says, don't focus on, on what those outside the church are doing. Don't spend your time worrying about that. Worry about what's happening in the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. It's a very difficult thing that, the, uh, that Paul is calling the church to. But make no mistake, it's, it's the right thing that he's calling them to. We saw back in verse 7, he's calling them to be what they are. Now, As we think on this, I think there's one, one question that we're, we're left with. What does it actually look like practically practically today? Well, one thing that, that must be said, we, we should be thankful. This isn't the kind of thing that we constantly have had to deal with. And one help we have, that there are other parts of God's Word that point out how we might respond if a person falls into this kind of unrepentant sin. Uh, one of the most helpful passages is in Matthew 18, which I'll read uh, now. This is what Jesus says in, in verses 15 to 17 of, of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Uh, You'll have noticed there are two fairly big steps that take place before any sort of church discipline is enacted. First, one Christian goes to another concerning sin. If they don't listen, they take another person or two along, and the hope is this person caught in sin would see the error of their ways and would repent. But in some cases, if that doesn't happen, the the church needs to get involved. And if that fails, the person must be treated like a non-believer, someone who needs to be reminded of of God's love for them in Jesus and needs to be transformed by that love. Now in Corinth, it it sounds like uh, things are in many ways at at those last stages where the church needs to call this man to account for his sexual immorality. And cast him out if, if necessary. So that's how it could, should kind of help us to, to, in terms of how it plays out uh, when it, where a person is, is characterised by ongoing, unrepentant sin, where they claim to be a believer. But that will never happen if, if God's people don't react rightly to sin. Uh, people's reactions have a big impact on us. Uh, picture it's after the service, you're outside, uh A kid's running around and all of a sudden they they fall down in front of you, a big group of you. Now if you make a big deal of it, uh, chances are that kid will will start crying. But If you don't make too much of a big deal of it, they get up and carry on running. They think it's normal. And just as kids take their cues from, from those around them, Paul sees individuals in the church taking their cues from the church community. And a church that doesn't respond to sin in the right way will struggle to call people to account when they see them heading down the wrong path. Compromise leads to more compromise. And what is the right response when a, a professing Christian is caught in sexual immorality or any type of ongoing unrepentant sin? It's there in verse 2 it's grief. The right response is grief, it's certainly not pride. Are we as a church grieved by sin? Are we, are we grieved by sin as individuals? Or is compromise making us numb to its effects? Our sin and the sin of, sin of others should, should grieve us and lead us to action. Uh, I want to finish with this quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book Life Together, with which I think beautifully sums up this passage. Nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Why don't we pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the reminder uh, of the place of church discipline. Uh, for the sake of the individual and for the sake of the church, uh, your holy temple. Father, help us to see sin as you see it. Help us to be grieved by it. May we not compromise when we see it in our lives uh, and in the lives of others. Thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sin. Father, we know it's so easy to fall off the the narrow path and end up, uh, like the Corinthians, boasting about sin, ignoring its consequences. Please would you keep us from that. Help us to walk in your ways and not the ways of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.